Life is filled with spiritual warfare. If we look at the world around us and we're actually honest and adults who are mature and examine the world, what we are up against here in Western civilization is totally spiritual warfare. I would say the fastest growing religion is politics, but really the fastest growing religions is things inside the church that want to be inside the church and not really worship Christ our Lord or God revealed to us in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They want to come here and worship something else while wearing the brand of Christianity. And today we're going to talk about the truth of spiritual warfare. It doesn't always look like heads spinning around, as you might find in a horror film. And furthermore, spiritual warfare, as far as it is truly concerned, it's actually rare that it looks like a head spinning around and green stuff going everywhere. That, that's one of the rare times in life, though. Evil will be that blatant if it needs to be. But instead, spiritual warfare tends to take the form of the daily conflict that keeps us up at night. The things that they come and they situate deep within the recesses of our mind and they plague us. They, they won't let our mind go somewhere else. They won't let our mind return back to the holy things which God wants us to be pondering. They keep us in dark places and they come to distract us. Often in life, we are faced with things that are just plain dumb. And I hate to be so brutal about that, but many of the, the main, much of the spiritual warfare is just dumb. It's irrational and there's not a reasonable solution to it, but it's in our life and we have to deal with it. Therefore, we must fortify our souls so that we can overcome and continue on the adventure of holiness that Christ has called us to. Now, if you'll hang with me to the end of this message, I'm going to share how we respond to spiritual warfare and the horrible problems that keep us up at night. And as we come to this, I want us to keep a few things in mind. One, that evil has a diverse portfolio. It is well invested. When we look to the, well, you look at any gospel and you see the devil coming to confront Jesus in the wilderness, we find some interesting things. On the surface level, he says, yeah, I'll have you break your fast. But really what the devil is wanting to do is he wants him to break the laws of creation and recreate humanity as a product of stone rather than something created in the image of God that is sustained by the breath of life which came from God. Now, the devil has an ambitious stunt and he knows that. Thus, the devil will settle for the smaller victory of just getting Jesus to break his fast. Evil can take whatever it can get. If it gets a big victory, fine. If it gets a small victory, fine. It just wants to get a victory. And when we are looking at the world around us and we realize that as Christians, one of the basic things we are taught and turns out to be true is that sin is naturally desirable. The carnal nature is deep within all of us and God loves us in spite of that. And whenever we see the world and we see spiritual warfare and we see that it is carnal nature versus carnal nature, do not bet against the carnal nature. I know that sounds like circular logic, doesn't it, Anthony? Maybe a little bit. But it's true. Only the holiness of God can overcome. And, and that's really where we're at as Christians. We realize it's not by our own power, not by our own merit, but the holiness of God comes and breaks into our life. And in spite of the carnal nature, it comes to take us to a better place. We have a lot of things in the world which cause spiritual warfare. The church is racked with it right now. Historically, um, and I'll get to this here a little bit further in this message. Historically, whenever the church has faced persecution from the outside world, it has grown. As long as the church has been rooted in orthodoxy. For most of my Christian walk and most of my life, um, I've always thought of persecution as something which happens outside of the immediate. It happens outside of the church, happens from the world, you know, the government coming in, you know, Hollywood makes movies that paint the church badly. I actually think that is not the problem that we face. And I, I'm 100% convinced that's not the problem. 
whenever we see Jesus talking about persecution, enduring for his namesake, the great opposition that faces him is from within the house of Israel. It's people inside the church. And here, for some reason in the modern age, we think we're somehow exempt from this. But we live in a day and age where the church has ceased in many places, not all the time. Um, there's a lot of really good churches out there, but the loud voices that sit up and they, they want to move Christian culture, they have rather than standing up to things that are heretical, things that are saying the gospel is not enough, we've got to do this, 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 and this. Whenever we get to those points, we don't say no to it. And the church has internal conflict and spiritual warfare that's going on within the church. People don't really know who we are. We're not growing. We're not doing the things that we should. And it is because of internal spiritual warfare that, that comes to plague us. Now, I know that all that sounds doomsday-esque and kind of negative, but this is going to go in a hopeful direction because there's always hope in the gospel. And whenever we're centered around orthodoxy, good things happen. So as I said earlier, there are many things that come to plague us in this life. And Jesus wants us to righteously endure life in fallen creation. And he wants us to do this for the sake of his name. And when we ask ourselves what's going on in our world and we decide we are going to endure it, we, we ask why should we endure it, but we are called to endure it, we must always remember that God is a merciful God. We want justification and say, Jesus, why are you making me deal with this? You know, someone in my house did something horrible to me. Why do I have to deal with this? I see this violence going on in the world. I see terrible things. Why do I have to endure this? Well, the truth is, is God is a merciful God. He chose to redeem fallen creation rather than to obliterate it. And just as Christ came to suffer on the cross, we too must endure. Now, let's get to some scripture. Anthony, would you read from us, for us, from Matthew chapter 16 and the first few verses there. So begin in Matthew 16, 1 and read all the way down to verse 4, if you would not mind. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, It shall be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation ask for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. I love how many times we find Jesus, he just leaves them and goes away. Um, there are times when Jesus, he sees things that are just utterly dumb. And even though he loves people in spite of the dumb, he just says, well, I'm, I'm moving on with the adventure of holiness. The ministry of the gospel is continuing in spite of these things. Anyways, we look to this scene here in, in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 16. And this is the spiritual warfare. This is what this is. So many times we expect spiritual warfare in the Gospels to look like Jesus versus a demon. But if we're honest about what the Gospels say, a lot of times people are fine with the demon. you got the Gadarene demoniacs there in that region. And they're out in the cemetery. People, they beg Jesus to leave. They'd rather have the demon. Um, we see that all the time. People are like, Jesus, go away. The demons, are they're in the cemetery. They're fine. They don't care. The true spiritual warfare that goes on is what we find here. In the scripture. In this scene, if we step into it, we find the Messiah, the begotten Son of God. He is being confronted by who? Well, by top-tier religious leaders. This is what we find. You've got religious leaders over here. They're the elites. They've spent their whole life dedicated to studying the law, Judaism, all this stuff. And over here, you've got the Messiah, the God the Son. 
and there there's conflict going on there. This this set of scripture, this is not a spiritual utopia in this scene. The house of Israel is racked with conflict and it's internal conflict. But Jesus is here to settle it. And when he's done with the matter, he he simply just walks away, he goes goes along. So we look at this, and this really is an example of, of where I have come to rethink persecution. The most devastating opposition that we face in life, and you out there listening to this, you look at your own life, you will realize the most devastating opposition that you've probably ever faced was within your own house. Someone you loved, someone close to you, people that were in your friend circles, you know, maybe it was even people at your work. Most of the time when we have life-wrecking devastation, it is from people that are close to us. Now, it does happen in rare cases. You find some totalitarian that comes and overthrows a nation. We find people like Stalin, Lenin, Hitler. We find corrupt people that will come and, and root people out of their homes and, and do wicked things to them and even take their life. But most of the time throughout history, the devastation comes from within. And again, you look in Scripture, occasionally you get people like Nebuchadnezzar. You get people enslaved in and um, there with, with Pharaoh in Egypt. But what really hinders Moses is when he gets there to the, to the waters and they look at Moses and say, oh, Moses, why'd you bring us here? Were there not enough graves for us back in, in Egypt? You know, when, when Moses is trying to lead them, the problems he faces is that he doesn't have united people within him. And I've come to realize that when we look at the church around us, we're cheapening the power of the gospel when we think that persecution is only from the the place over there, the government coming over here and, and doing things to us when Rome was being persecuted or when the Christians in Rome were being persecuted by the Roman government and culture. We think, you know, that that's what persecution looks like. But really, it looks like people within the, the family of God turning against one another when sheeps become wolves. And I realize this is really what holds the church back from growth. You look at what's going on in the world right now. You look at places like China. You look at the history of places like South Korea. And you can see that the gospel is capable of manifesting even in spite of persecution. You look at ancient Rome, a lot of really drastic growth happened in direct spite of persecution. People, they saw the martyrs die for their faith, and they were coming in droves to be baptized. And what that means is worldly persecution does not really slow the gospel. You find people come to Jesus and call him Beelzebub, that doesn't really slow him down. Um... The church, when it is grounded, just as Jesus was grounded in his faith, he could endure that and not get hung up for it because he saw the bigger picture. And whenever the church understands who it is and it can move forwards, it is going to grow in spite of worldly persecution. The thing which causes the church to have trouble doing that is when there is internal division, where you have people come in who, who are teaching things which aren't the gospel. They come and say, you know, the gospel is not enough, and they, they move away from Christian orthodoxy that is where the problems happen. So we look at this, and just getting a little bit back to, to the track that I wanted this program to go. When Jesus talks to us into the, in the New Testament, he says, you know, you're going to be persecuted for my namesake. But the great opposition that he faces is from within his own house. It's the house of Israel. And yeah, like I said, there are times where you get faraway nations coming to overthrow you, but most of the time the devastating persecution is from within. When Jesus teaches that a house divided will fall, he is teaching that for a reason. It's not because Jesus is ignorant 
of the world around. He's not ignorant of the fact that I'm a Jew. They're, they're Jews over there. There's division between where I'm at and them. And I'm saying this and I have no self-awareness. No, Jesus is saying that because he is completely aware of everything going around. Jesus realizes I'm of the house of Israel. They're of the house of Israel. We are divided. And this is going to reach a boiling point where God is going to have to die on the cross. Jesus is speaking directly to the fact that persecution that is the deadliest, devastating, that causes cultures to collapse, it happens inside. The things which wreck your family, the things which bring about divorce, the things which, which cause people to not talk to one another, they happen between family members. Think about that. Think about that fact. In Christian culture, we have reduced persecution to an external affair. And we've done this largely because we want to avoid the conflict of calling one another out when something is going on that's not right. We reduce Christianity to a passive social gathering where we hold our hands in the air and we sing non-aggressive songs with non-aggressive music that's extremely passive. We've reduced Christianity to an empathetic feeling, and it's very unfortunate because this is not true Christianity and it's not the truth of the gospel. The truth of persecution is sitting right there in plain sight. And when we listen to Jesus saying that a house divided will fall, he is talking to people who are all of the house of Israel that is divided. We're in spiritual warfare and Christ came to reign victorious in it. Christ didn't look at the world and say, this house division will fall and therefore I'm going to forsake it, I'm going to destroy it and let it fall. Christ loves them in direct spite of that. Sometimes when we, we come to the church, we see victories in the immediate moment. Sometimes we have to wait until the resurrection. And that's really what happens in this particular text we read. He says, you know, you'll get that sign of Jonah, which means three days after being in the belly of the well, one will come out of that. Three days after being in the grave where you're really dead, Jesus, you will come out victorious. Christ is going to reign victoriously in the end. But as Christians in the church, we must choose who are we going to follow, who are we worshiping, and whose gospel are we advancing? And this applies not just to the church as a whole, it applies to our lives as individuals, it applies to our problems that we have with ourselves and our girlfriend, or our, if we're, we're a young lady, our, ourself and our boyfriend. It applies to all of this stuff. The, the problem of the, the Pharisees and Sadducees is not so much that they're asking for a sign. And this is where we find things that are just utterly dumb. It's that they already had many, many signs but they were unwilling to receive them. They had made the mistake of trusting in their personal experience and the expertise of the Jewish law to the point where they could not observe anything that was right in front of them. They couldn't understand the reality around them and how the law would relate to that world. Jesus tells us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Therefore, we know it's not sinful to be critical thinkers and to examine those around us. In fact, if you've been in a class like I have right now where we're studying the Didache, a lot of early Christian teaching was on how to tell the difference between heretics and not. You know, you actually look to the, to the New Testament, you find a lot of people writing about there are going to be antichrist people coming. You know, how do you differentiate between these things? It's, it's a pretty common theme. So we know it's not sinful to be a critical thinker and examine those around us, but that's not really what's going on here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, these people, they had signs. They had done their examinations. They, they had sermons. They had such great evidence. Again, these, these religious leaders, they saw such great evidence that commoners, Gentiles, 
People with no education at all whatsoever, and even demons could see that Jesus was the Messiah. It's pretty obvious to, to those who wanted to, to see Jesus for who he was, that he was the Messiah, but it was hidden to those who did not earnestly seek him. The sin is not critically thinking about Jesus and examining his ministry. The sin is in continuing to push for more and more signs because they don't like the evidence that they've been given. And we do this in life too. People do this all the time. They say, oh, well, I don't like that fact. I don't like that, so I'm just going to ignore it. And that's where the sin comes in where you're starting to hide from, from reality. Whenever people behave like this, they are beyond reason, and they behave like this often. And we find that this happens inside the church where people come here to worship something other than God. So how do we respond to, to spiritual warfare? Um, first off, we have to recognize that it is happening. Again, it doesn't look like demons and things out there all the time. It is very possible for that to happen. I'm not here to discount that. That's very, very possible. But oftentimes it looks like you and someone you're close to coming in and disagreement on the core things which show who we are. So when we get to um, the question of how we address spiritual warfare, there's really a movement that has to take place within ourselves in order to be able to address it and know when to move on and when not to. So whenever we're faced with conflict in life that utterly opposes us, I want us to begin with asking this question. I want us to look at ourselves and say, what am I advancing in my life? What, what am I advancing? And then look at the ones who oppose you and say, well, what are they advancing? And after you've, you've kind of made that assessment, then you say, well, how can I give glory to God? And sometimes that means I need to move on if people aren't willing to examine the signs that have already been given. This is how we should respond to spiritual warfare. We first ask ourselves to examine the fruits of our lives and where we stand. And then we examine the fruits of those opposing us. If our opposition is unwilling to repent, and we ourselves sometimes need to repent, then we just say we're going to give glory over to God because he is the one who would judge the living and the dead, and we hand thanks to him. Now, one of the major reasons that we find this to be difficult is because people tend to lack self-awareness. And that's why I have this question. This question which I posed is very, very purposefully structured. The question is, whose gospel are we advancing? What are the fruits that are in our lives? Many people, they refuse to look at themselves with a mature mind and recognize there is a possibility for sin. The Pharisees and Sadducees in this text did not allow for this sort of self-examination. They didn't think it was possible for them to be wrong. But whenever we are faced with opposition and we start with this question, what is it I am advancing, we'll find out a little about, about who we are. Because this is not a question about what are our intentions. Because so many times people have good intentions and they do terrible things. People can do outright sinful, wicked, pits of hell, awful things with really good intentions, with good convictions there. They think they're doing things right. See, the church, if, if we're the church, we recognize that that happens. It's one of the, the tools in the diverse evil portfolio. Evil can trick people into doing horrible things. So when we start with this question, what is it that I'm advancing? It causes us to look at the fruits of our behavior and examine their nature. If we are sincere Christians living out the testimony of Christ as our Lord, then the fruits of our actions should match up with the gospel. And if they do not match up, then we should repent. We need to endure a metanoia in our lives. And metanoia is that 
Greek word that means a changing of ways. Your heart, your mind, they have changed directions. The hobbies, the habits, the stuff that's going on in your life, the direction you're going, it has changed. If you think about a railroad, they have points which click and move the things. The points on the track have changed. You're not going down the same path anymore. Now then we take this question, we apply it to those oppose us. And we look at them. We say, you know, what are they doing? What are their fruits? Not, not a question of their intentions, not a question of their feelings, not a question of how they've experienced the world to do, experienced the, the world to be and what they plan to do about it. This is a question of their fruits. And by examining the fruits, we can see if they are truly aligned with us or not and see if they're aligned with Christ. We have to recognize it is possible for people to be genuinely misled and do things which, again, they believe are right but are really not. And in these cases, we approach them with mercy and grace and we show the evidence of Christ living and how he taught us to live and we go from there. If they're unreasonable and unwilling to repent, then we move on. And if they are willing to repent, then we share in life with them. We have to remember that spiritual matters are mysterious, but that does not mean they are subjective. And I, I need to re repeat that sentence again. Spiritual matters are mysterious, but that does not mean they are subjective. Now, a sensible person, they would look at the preacher and say, Preacher, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that you can prove all spiritual matters? No, that's not what that means. What that means is that spiritual matters, they have aspects that are mysterious and we cannot explain. But that does not mean that everything is open to interpretation. Just because two people interpreted an event entirely different does not mean that both interpretations are valid. It doesn't mean that everybody's experience is valid. It doesn't mean that everybody's feeling is true and good and pure. You know, basic Christian orthodoxy reminds us that sin is naturally desirable. Sometimes people want to do sin. And in fact, if we understand how sin works, people almost always want to do sin. It's sort of the, the rare sins that people are tricked into doing. They don't do it, you know, with, with conscious intent. This is the whole idea of original sin. It is inherited. It is fallen creation. We understand that there is objective truth. Christianity is a faith that believes in objective truth. Christ is the life, the truth, and he is the way. He is the light. He, he comes to bring light into our world and to show us the, the way of life which takes us off the path of death and it moves us close to God. And sometimes this doesn't, again, I'm not saying that people always understand what the truth of a situation is, but I'm saying that the objective truth does exist and Christ knows it even if we don't. Sometimes truth is complex, and we have to be mature to understand that. Take, for instance, the trick image that I imagine everyone has seen where they've got, it's usually black and white, and it says, you know, what do you see when you see this? Do you see a vase or do you see two faces? People tend to look at it, and they see different images. Some see vases, some see faces. But y'all want to know what the truth is? Is that it's actually neither. It's not a vase, nor is it two vases. The truth is, is that it's a trick image made to look like both. And sometimes the truth is complex like that. The correct answer is that it's neither. It's just a game made to take you into a place of trickery. In all things, we must give glory to God. And this means living how he taught us to live. Not how we wish he taught us to live. This does not mean that we go out and advance the cause of something other than the gospel and say, Oh, look, God, I did this for you. God, you know, we, we wanted to do something for you, so we went over here and we sacrificed our babies to Molech. No. 
That is, that is not, not how this works. You don't get to say, well, God, I didn't really think your gospel was enough. I didn't think it was enough to forgive people. So we went over here and we, we mixed in with a little paganism so that we could give glory to you because God, God comes to, to pursue brokenness, right? No, that, that is not correct. If we understand Christianity, God loves us in spite of the brokenness. God, the Father, is the parent. He is the Father of all creation. And when he looks at his creation, he doesn't say, Oh, how I love the curse of sin. I came to have solidarity with your sin. No, that is not true. Um, one of the things which irks me is how the word solidarity is often used in the church. Solidarity has no moral value, guys. Um, I, I, I don't know if Anthony wants to <laughs> respond to my rhetorical questions on this, but, but things like solidarity, they have no moral, moral value. It, it's not good nor bad. If I come in here and find that somebody's running, you know, drug rings, prostitution rings, I don't come in and say, oh, I have solidarity with you. No, no, no. Well, I'm just going to, I guess, confess some sins here and say, honestly, I've just got to take your word for it because I don't know what solidarity means. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, thank you. A lot of this stuff is dumb and doesn't really have an objective meaning. But the truth is that God doesn't come to sit with you and hold hands and say, ah, you're here in sin. I'm going to give you a big... No, God comes and loves you in spite of that so that you might be transformed out of that and you do not have to suffer the endless death caused by sin. That's Amen. what the gospel actually says. The gospel doesn't say... And we've been reading through the gospel of Matthew um, and we sometimes forget how brutal the gospel is. It's the most loving thing that has ever happened. And it's also the most mature thing that has ever happened. When Christ comes to people, sometimes he says, get behind me, Satan. Sometimes he says, you're going to see a resurrection. You're going to see the sign of Jonah, and then he walks away. Sometimes he sits with people, and he does give them a hug. You know, sometimes he sits there after Lazarus has, has been raised, and he, he sits there with people. There, there's weeping, there's joy, there's complex emotions. Sometimes before Lazarus dies, he says, this death does not lead to death, which is basically what he says when he says this illness does not lead to death. Jesus is mature. He looks at the world around us, and he comes to love us in spite of the brokenness. And to, to actually not beat around the bush here, I think one of the biggest issues we have in the church is the idolatry of identity, where people, they, they've got to talk identity, 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 and, you know, all this, this junk. And they forget that God does not want us to identify with sin and the, the brokenness in the world. God loves us in spite of that. Christ does not come pursuing the brokenness. Christ comes to redeem. You know, I, I hate to, to pull the, it's in the name Redeemer, but Christ comes to get things away from that. And we as the church, we have adopted a mentality that rather seeking to point people to the hope in Christ that says, all of you are dogs, all of you are sinners, all of you need redemption. And instead of us spending our time pointing people to the hope of the gospel and showing this is what sanctification looks like. And while right now you don't think you want sanctification because you think you really like your sins, you say, I was born this way, this sin feels really good to me. You might find out that sanctification that takes you close to the God who made you is more fulfilling. And the eternal life, which transcends anything that we could ever imagine, is a lot more fulfilling then I really want to have my sin with my cup of coffee in the morning or, or I, I really don't want to change who I am or I, I really want to, to say this is my personality, I get to get away with this, this is my sin proclivity, this is my sin proclivity. Everybody has their sin proclivity. 
Sin is naturally experienced. It is naturally loved. It is naturally found after the fall. But there's something which transcends the natural state of fallen creation that takes us to an almost supernatural place, which is not really supernatural at all. It's just the original design for humanity, the original design for living with a God who can create us with his word. We in the church, if we truly believe in the power of the gospel, then we understand that the gospel is enough. Um, There are many in the church who think that the purpose of the church is to establish a worldly utopia, that that persecution only comes from the world and we've got to get here, we've got to get on the social movement of today. We need to stop talking about social movements and start talking about the gospel. Trying to establish a worldly utopia is idolatry. I hate to tell anyone this, God did not put us here to establish little utopias here and there. God looked at fallen creation and this is, this, this is what has been revealed to us. God said, I'm going to send my son to die so that fallen creation can have a new hope that there can be redemption. And instead of me coming and exterminating everything with the breath of life, I'm going to make a way for them to be redeemed so that they can join with me when the fullness of heaven has arrived. Anthony, I know you get rhetorical questions. Has the fullness of heaven arrived? Is that what basic Christian orthodoxy has told us? Nope. So why in the world would we want to try to pretend that it's here and we need to make a utopia? Hmm. I don't know. I think, uh, I guess it'd be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course it would be nice. Why wouldn't it be nice? Of course it would be nice. I suppose also if it's not here, uh, we are certainly called to participate with God in the work that is bringing it. Okay. let's all hold down because you just said a very adult thing, which is the correct theological understanding. The fullness of heaven comes when we find the day of resurrection. Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. And everybody has a new body that's not tainted by sin. But Anthony, what did you say we're called to do? Would you say that for me one more time? Participate in the work of God. Uh, I suppose um, sanctifying creation. You, you had a, a verb there that I really want us to get back to. Started with a B. It rhymes with ringing. Bringing. All right. There we go. Bring, and this is Anthony's language here. Um, I want to give credit to him. We are to participate in bringing about the kingdom, ushering it in. Again, we're not just accidentally part of it. Christ actually used called the church to be instrumental in this. And I'm not here to beat up on churches and say, if your numbers haven't grown in a while, you're, you're at guilt. I, I hate when general superintendents, when district superintendents come and do that. Because so many times, and even when we look throughout the history of the people of God, sometimes Jesus goes off into the wilderness to be alone for a while. Sometimes he goes to pray for a while. And he is alone. Like he, he desires to go and be alone for a while. And other times he's there with 5,000 people. There's, there's no moral value in a lot of stuff that, the, that people want to put moral value on. Sometimes the church just endures and we survive to hand, hand off the scriptures to in the next generation with orthodoxy, with tradition that says, you live the gospel. Maybe that means the next generation is smaller than you. Maybe it means it's so many times larger you can't fathom it. But all you got, you're just called to hand it off um, and to, to spread the gospel, to be bringing people in. And what that means is what we are called to do as the church is to give glory to God and worship Christ. We're not called to worship anything else. And if your church is worshiping Christ, 
then then you should not go home and feel guilty and and you know, say, oh, you know, our numbers haven't changed, therefore we're guilty. If you are giving glory to Christ Jesus and you are fully living out what he has called you to live, that is all that you are asked to do. But what happens is we get people who say, well, you know, the, the utopia isn't here yet, so we've got to do something about it. And instead of thinking with instincts that are rooted in the gospel that say the problems in the world are, are sin, they start to say, oh, well, it's systems of power or it's you know, race is a social construct which is incoherent and just plain dumb. There's no evidence for that, and it's and that's and you know it's not even about evidence because it's an it is a different belief system than what Christianity teaches us. Christianity teaches us that sin is the problem, and whenever we start thinking something other than sin is the problem, we're opening up the door. Sin comes in, and it the floodgates are open, and and we lose our way as the church. This is why we must understand the truth of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, it takes place in your life, not with the red devil and the unitard, most of the time. Sometimes that does happen. Sometimes you do get a, a head spinning around. You know, sometimes that happens. I'm, I'm not going to say that never happens. It does occasionally. But most of the time it happens with someone coming in doing something other than Christian orthodoxy. And so many times the church, we try to avoid conflict and we forget the purpose of the kingdom of God is not to avoid conflict. Jesus going to the cross was the ultimate conflict between life and death. Jesus had conflict with these people and he settled it. He moved them towards God. He did not get and wallow around in the mud and stay there with them and say, I'm going to be in solidarity with you in the mud. He says, no, I love you in spite of that. Those who will come with me, come with me. He sees the disciples and he says, come. It's a command. And for those who obey, well, they get up and their whole life is changed. Crazy stuff happens. Radical stuff happens. Things that seem so out there that they couldn't possibly be natural, but yet they are products of the word of God manifested through Christ Jesus, making them the most natural thing that there could ever be. We look at our world, we must realize that it is contaminated with spiritual warfare. We are called to advance the cause of holiness and to be transformed by his image. Now, a lot of times that does have outcroppings. That, that has outcomes of, of movements that affect society, they affect cultures, but all of those must be the byproduct. Yeah, those are downstream. They are down, yes, thank you, they are downstream. Whenever you start to think that the thing which is downstream is up there at the top, you have messed up. The object of our love is Christ Jesus. Now, that may manifest a little differently in people's life. People are called to different things. We're adults. We can make those distinctions. But whenever we start saying it's really not about the, the goal, it's about the journey, it's, it's about being there in limbo, and you never actually go to that fulfillment, you have missed the mark because Christianity is a place of objective truth. You know, Christ did not resurrect um, only if you believe it. You know, if you don't believe it, he didn't. No, he, it, it is a fact. And it is independent of your consent. It either happened or it didn't. And if you're a Christian, you know within your heart of heart and you believe this did happen. But you also recognize it is an objective thing. Christ being the Word. Christ being the begotten Son of God. We can't explain it. We don't know how it happened. But just because we can't explain how it happened doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And we have to be adults who make these distinctions. The truth of spiritual warfare is this that it takes place within our own house with those whom we are endeared. 
The church is not meant to avoid conflict or worship anything other than the one true God that has revealed himself in the persons of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Christ wants us to endure fallen creation that we might bring victory, that others might come to know him, and that we may all participate in his victory, which will come in the fullness of his kingdom. Again, there will be no confusion when, when Christ comes in, in full, when, when he sits on the, the judgment seat judging the living and the dead. Nobody will say, I don't know who Christ I, I, I don't know. There will be clarity. So I want us to ponder all this. And I know I was a little bit, um, I guess, more aggressive today. Uh, Anthony has kind of seen the, the evolution I've had um, where I've just kind of got a little fed up with the, the dumb that goes on. And also the clarity I've had that says, if the church can unite, I recognize that where we're at in America, there is mass movements trying to rail against the church. But I don't think they're our problem. I think our problem is when those movements, they come inside the church and they wear the brand of Christ Jesus and we have internal division. I don't care what size fellowship you're at. I don't care what that fellowship looks like. I don't care you know, how many people there are, what age they are, what style music you use. If you are a group of believers who believe in Orthodox Christianity, no matter the size, age, anything like that, when we come together and believe in the gospel, and, and I mean really believe it, we can have great growth and revival in spite of whatever the world's going to throw at us. History bears that out. The teaching of Christ Jesus bear that out. That's just how it is. We will have revival if we can have firm roots in orthodoxy. But if we want to sit around and, as the Babylon Bee says, church who believes the same thing as the, the world around, and invite the spiritual warfare where a part of the church believes the same thing as the world and part of the church believes in orthodoxy, we have that internal division which is churchmen versus churchmen, that's where we're going to find chaos. Anthony, any final thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, I guess you're just talking about what is what it takes for the house to fall. And it is division. It is. But Jesus loves that in spite of that. And Jesus can bring victory in spite of that. D don't let us fool ourselves and think that the church of Christ Jesus is going to fall because some of us do dumb things. That also is idolatry to think that a few of us can destroy Christ. Christ's church is going to endure. That I can I can guarantee you. Um, but Christ wants us to have joy. He wants us to be growing. He wants good things to happen in the life of the church. With that, thank you for joining us. We are Kingdom of the Logos. Send me your thoughts, questions, or comments on anything that we've talked about. You can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our channel on YouTube, download our podcast, take us with us wherever you go. Make sure you're part of a local fellowship. Again, doesn't matter what it really looks like, what size it is, where it's at, as long as the Orthodox gospel is preached and you're there to actually worship Christ Jesus. You're there to, to invoke the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and give glory to God as is fit. With that, we thank you so much for joining us. God love you and have a blessed day.